This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. All right, once again, it's time for the DLR Cast. As you just heard, the podcast by and for, the essential podcast by and for fans of the mighty one, Diamond David Lee Roth. I'm Steve, along here with my good friend, Darren Paltrowitz. What's happening, Darren? Steve, always great to connect, and thank you guys for listening. Yeah, so we got another cool interview with a journalist slash author coming up, and it's, again, perfectly timed like our previous interview uh, which with Mitch Schneider, given that Dave has been in the news of late. Who do we got coming up, Darren? This is G. Brown. He is, besides being an author and a journalist, podcast moderator, curator, executive director, He's involved with the Colorado Music Experience. He is one of your go-to sources if you want to talk about music from the last four or five decades that have come through the Denver area. So he has a great series of books called On Record. And the first one of them that I got was 1978. The next one I got was 1984. I think those are kind of big years for Van Halen, so that got me thinking. Yeah, I love that idea. Well, it's a really cool interview. And it's interesting because after the Mitch Snyder interview and then us talking leading up to this, I got to thinking again about Dave in the New York Times about two weeks ago. And but I also got to thinking a bit a while back, you know, Dave's been on numerous podcasts the last couple of years. Uh, so he gets press, even though he's not doing much outside of painting. And of course, he was getting a lot of press uh, going out, as you would expect, going out with Kiss prior to uh, the global pandemic. But if you look back a bit, and this got me really curious, that 2007 reunion tour, right? You could have called that one the Hell, When Hell Freezes Over tour, because <laughs> if you thought that DL, Dave was ever going to get back with Van Halen and actually play music, uh, you could have lost money taking that bet, because it did happen. And But if you remember, Darren, and correct me if I'm wrong, outside of an opening press conference where we all saw how young uh, Wolfgang was. I mean, I think he was 13 or 14 when he stepped on stage for the first time, replacing Michael Anthony. But there was that opening press conference, but there was no press along the tour. There was it was radio silence, which one I thought was really cool. And I'm sure that was somewhat dictated by manager extraordinaire Irving Azoff. And two, I wonder if it was something that they needed to do and was and maybe contracted to do uh and, or, or not do, I should say, with Dave coming back. Because certainly when Dave starts yapping, trouble starts happening. <laughs> <laughs> Did you just think of that one? Right off the top of my head, my friend. I don't know where that came from, but I love it. But when you think of it, that's often been the case. Yeah. Um, now that I'm thinking about it, was it for a different kind of truth where they did the Cafe Wash show in New York City? Yeah, that was Cafe Wa, and then and then that album was released with a DVD, and it's online. I think it was released with a DVD, where it's Dave sitting on stools. They did acoustic stuff, where it's Dave reminiscing and telling stories, uh, stories and hearing stories. Dave interviewing essentially Alex and Eddie, talking about you know how they came up and Eddie's parents, Eddie and Alex's parents, and how supportive they were, and just how they came up from the hard scrabble streets of Pasadena, but. But if you think, take that another step further, what I was talking about, I remember, too, I think Eddie did basically one, maybe two interviews for that that press cycle for that album. And I think it was an exclusive with like Guitar World. And that was it. 
And Dave did press for that. I think, he, you know, a few things. But, uh, you know, there was like one or two really big pieces. But nowhere did we see, like you saw way back in the day, of Dave doing press with each tour star, uh, each tour stop, um, you know, just being out there all the time in support of a new tour or a new project or something. And I can't help but wonder if that was something that they that was kind of something they had to do for the reunion. Yeah, whenever you hear that Irving Azoff is involved with something, you go like, that's the smartest way to do it. That is really the smartest man. I don't know about the history of the music business, but top five for sure. Uh, Irving Azoff is on that list. So there had to have been a reason why there wasn't a lot of press going on. Because, yeah, in a perfect world, I would have loved to have seen some Rolling Stone writer or somebody embedded in and going way in the details on how this all happened. I mean, how did it? What were their first, first rehearsals like? I mean, suddenly, uh, I mean, YouTube was kind of new and there was all of a sudden uh, some rehearsal footage. They taped like one of the last shows in front of family and friends, like a re- full rehearsal show. There was rumors, sure. And granted, social media was just kind of. Uh, you know, was a different beast altogether in 2007, but it kind of just came out there. You heard rumors and then six or eight months later, they were out on the road. And, but you really did not know, didn't know the nuts or bolts or how outside of huge bags of cash, let's say, but I wanted, (laughs) I wanted to know, you know, how they ended up getting back together again. I mean, certainly like we've talked about on this podcast the 96 reunion was barely a reunion that fell apart and then of course eddie in the early aughts was that was not a good scene end of the 90s early aughts uh i mean he definitely had some problems with substances and that those he was fantastic and looked fantastic and played great uh on that first reunion tour with dave yeah and while i'm brainstorming on this whole thing the jimmy came alive thing where dave hit himself in the face that was also the second reunion tour that wasn't the 0708 no i think that was it was so they went out 0708 then they did different kind of truth which came out in 2012 they toured for that and then 2015 was really the last tour which was i guess you can call that a greatest hits tour and who knew it was going to be the last tour but that was it and i think that was the kimmel appearance ahead of that tour yeah so you bring up a really really good point that what did they do in 0708 besides that first press conference? And I, I do remember some of it. I can visualize some of that in my head of Dave taking questions from people. But it's always that weird thing where Dave kind of emerges. Then he does nonstop press for a couple of months. And then he disappears for a couple of years. And well, then he comes out and does a couple of months. And then he disappears for a couple of years. Yeah, and and no pandemic required either because at the end of last year, and I've lost all track of time, so somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but was it end of last year? It was Ink the Original all the time. He got pressed for that, this tattoo uh, skincare line company that he was heavily involved in, and then it was like nothing. Then he had a podcast at the end of the year, a video podcast with him with those funky glasses, talking to a co-host with palm, <laughs> with palm trees behind him, waxing yeah. insanely and philosophically and occasionally, um, uh, you know, nonsensically about any sort of topic that he could we would weigh in on. And no mention of ink on any of those, as far as I remember, certainly not on most of them. And then the podcast went away. The last one was in January. Then he goes out on the road with Kiss or some there's a, some press around that. And then, of course, we got hit with the pandemic. But you're right. He kind of appears out of nowhere. 
and then <laughs> disappears again. And now, of course, we've got the painting and the New York Times thing. And and uh, so it's nice to see some activity there. But, man, you know, when we're talking to journalists like this, I just I, there's got to be some sort of uh, um, embargo. I would I would would be shocked if there wasn't some sort of embargo. And and I would bet it took Dave a lot to go. Yeah. You know what? If this is what I got to do to get back together uh, with these guys, I guess I'm going to have to do it. Conversely, Dave's smart enough to get to know how important the mystery of things can be. And mm-hmm. if it was a defined strategy for that first reunion tour to say nothing but let the music and the performances do the talking, well, guess what? It worked. And it got everybody speculating and buying concert tickets. So one way or another, it worked. Well said. And, you know, the recent media glut that we had with with Dave, so he does Joe Rogan. Mark Marin, did he do the New York Times in the last wave? Where was it that he said that you're going to see me this summer playing Yankee Stadium with Metallica and the Foo Fighters? Where well, was it that, that he said that? I don't remember, but, you know, he's made some weird tour pronouncements before that was basically, yeah, that's not going to happen. At least for Van Halen, I remember a year or two ago, we're going out on the road and Irving Azoff was like, no, we're not. <laughs> so, and then you didn't hear from Dave for several months again. So, um yeah, this little round, I mean, well, from what we see, I mean, Rogan and Marin were several months ago, and then there was this New York Times thing, which basically came, you know, right after we started, you know, about a month or two after we started seeing all these uh, frog paintings and, <laughs> you know, on the on the interwebs. Yeah, I do remember him talking on the, man, the Rogan and the Mark Marin interviews kind of blend together after they do. a while. You're right. I remember Mark Marin, he kind of got him out of his comfort zone and he was calling him out on stuff. So, Dave, that was the most real I think I've I've heard him in a long time. I guess, you know, Mark Marin played up the fact that I'm Jewish, you're Jewish. Let's talk Jewish stuff. And that evil to that that disarmed him a little bit because Mark Marin's great with that. Joe yeah. Rogan is more the like, yes. And and he lets you rant and rant and rant. And one of the two. They were asking Dave if he had any interest in writing on a column for a publication. He said, oh, yeah, I got an offer for that. Yeah, I thought about it. And then you're kind of going, why are you not doing that? You know, you've got so many stories that people don't know. And you're a hell of a writer. That book, Crazy from the Heat, I love it. Some people think it was a little too verbose, a little too wordy. I love it. And I just heard him say that and you go like what what are you doing right now that you're so busy that you can't do a column for a major publication yeah exactly well he was doing uh some pretty again i can't remember times but it's, uh, but it's still on his website but he was doing some pretty lengthy blog posts there's about six or seven of them one was about a stalker that he had and if you, <laughs> if you seriously i don't know if you read them but go to davidleeroth.com and they they're at least five or six years old now and there was some interesting reading them like okay is this, gonna, this is cool it's gonna be a regular thing and then no. So I think maybe like a lot of us, you, you get a great idea, you have a lot of fun with it, then you get distracted and you're on to the next thing. I mean, if you have the luxury to be able to do that, God bless. But it's interesting you mentioned the crazy from the heat book about being verbose and stuff. I remember reading and hearing from more than one place is that his original draft of that book was twice as long. Yeah. And that, <laughs> not surprised, yeah. right? How'd you like to be the editor on that project? All right, we're cutting approximately 323 pages out of this. (laughs) Yet somehow the part about how when you try and 
draw cottage cheese in a foreign country where they don't speak English gets you punched in the face. Somehow that made the book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you remember that part? Yeah. I mean, just, yeah, I, I, I still love that book. I, a couple of months ago, I was flipping through it. Just, just it's, it, the biogra- autobiographies aren't aren't always kind of those dip in books where you can pick up anywhere and start reading. But I was listening to like your filthy little mouth, and I'm like, I remember him talking about a little bit about this for a couple paragraphs. And unfortunately, he doesn't go into the solo music as much as I would have liked. But I mean, in Dave's world, that's just a small little window of time. I think you know, as far as window of activity on a huge creative palette. Even though I know he thinks it's the most important one, he's got so many other things to talk about. Yeah, I can't imagine how much unreleased material, and I don't just mean music, just how much art he's created that he's never going to put out. And you could say the same thing about Eddie Van Halen, too, because how many of the Van Halen albums were made on site of 5150? Was it most of them after, like, 85? Yeah, after, well, 1984 was done. That was, I believe, the first time, the first yeah, I'm pretty sure that was because he built a studio out of racquetball courts at his house, and that was 1984. Uh, that's where they recorded it. So I think that was the first album. Then the succeeding albums after that. And what's kind of interesting about a different kind of truth is I believe all the music was recorded at 5150, but Dave's vocals were all done at Jim Henson Studios. Yes, I believe you're correct. I did an interview with Ross Hogarth a really famous engineer who worked on A Different Kind of Truth. Right. And he mentioned that Dave slowed down the process. He He's kind of on Team Eddie, not on Team Dave, you know, for sure. whatever reason it is. But he said, yeah, that it was a slower process because of Dave on that. I have to assume that Dave got the tracks, maybe with a scratch vocal, and they go, I'm doing it, I'm working on it, I'm working on it. And who knows if that's also what happened with the two new tracks from the greatest hits album. Yeah. Yeah. I will. I, I, yeah, I think they recorded that at 5150. Um, and you know, that was obviously difficult as he talks about in his book. And, um, uh, but you know, getting back to the, uh, those vocals for a different kind of truth, I mean, might slow down the process, but man, the backing vocals. And if you listen to the vocal arrangements in there and a lot of the things going on, I mean, I think Dave sounds great and did a great job wherever he did it. Yeah. So I'd imagine that just how many songs are on a different kind of troop? Is it 12? I believe it's 12. Yeah. Yeah. So you go, there's been no Dave album since what? Oh, (laughs) three diamond Dave, which was a covers album. Right. No solo (laughs) record. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then the DLR band album was 98. Yeah. Okay. So you're telling me the guy didn't write one song between 98 and... Well, uh, <laughs> he did, and he actually recorded a whole album that's in the can. He did an album with John Five, who was exactly. all... Exactly. ...who co-wrote a lot of and played on a lot of the DLR band album. And I've read some interviews with John, and I know he played a snippet of it on his phone from his phone on an Eddie Trunk podcast or interview. Mm-hmm. And... And he said parts of it, it's kind of like in the damn good vein. So I don't know if that from from Skyscraper. So I don't know if that means it's all acoustic, but that little snippet he played, you instantly thought, hmm, okay, 
damn good. And I am a huge John Five fan, and he was, I mm-hmm. thought, a perfect foil with Dave, and he loves Dave. And the guy's an amazing player. In fact, he's a huge country and chicken picking guy. I mean, the guy can shred, but he can also do some incredible finger picking. I mean, he grew up watching Hee Haw. I mean, I <laughs> would love to hear whatever him and Dave cooked up because John Five can play anything, and I would love to hear Dave, you know, rootsy and gritty and with John Five doing that stuff. So who knows if that'll ever be released, but it's, it's, there's a full album in the can from what I've, from, from what I've read and heard uh, via John five. Yeah. He played a snippet of it to Chris Jericho after his interview on a podcast as well. So, you know, repeating what I'm saying here. So there's no release material of originals from 98 to 2012. I mean, what I think there was a random one off or two. Did you ever hear the uh, song he recorded for like the terminally ill girl that's on Spotify? No, I've never even the, heard of this. Yeah, there. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you Google that one. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to imagine that Dave, as a guy that's never been married, that has no kids, that is always trying to learn and get better is creating something every single day. And are we one day going to see like there's a museum exhibit and it's going to be 50 of his best paintings? <laughs> are we going to see a Gene Simmons vault of unreleased stuff one day? Or does he just bury the whole thing? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, who knows? It's, I mean, that's the thing. And that goes, takes it full circle. There's still so much mystery around Dave and the Van Halen camp. I mean, when Warner Brothers reissued those Van Halen records a decade or so ago, it was just remastered, right? And, uh, you know, and cleaned up. There was no bonus tracks or B-sides or demos and stuff like that. Right. So. So every time there's like, you know, an isolated vocal of Dave doing Running with the Devil on YouTube or some, you know, or somebody releases the Gene Simmons tapes or there's weird outtakes or backyard party stuff, I freak out because it's these little morsels of all you get because nothing's coming out of the vaults. It's unbelievable. There there were some great alternate take vocal tracks that came out last year i think that's what you're referring yeah to. yeah yeah the, the isolated vocal tracks of like i remember running when the devil was one and you just no music just days vocals and you're like oh my god this is insane yeah i just i have to imagine he this is totally unrelated to van halen but it, then again it is an irving azoff former client guns and roses I mean, there's as many rumors about Axl Rose as there <laughs> as there are Eddie Van Halen, right? Would you agree with that one? Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and a lot of mystery when it comes to making music. But at least he actually got a lot of music out, even even if it took a while. I mean, totally. Well, there's rumors that when he finally put out Chinese Democracy, that he had two full albums ready to go. It's just he was waiting on somebody to back up the the Brinks truck of money to immediately get that and they probably looked at the sound scan of chinese democracy and went uh no not worth it you know something to that effect you know my analogy on of chinese democracy don't you no what that that? Al- that album was the equivalent of a james cameron movie it was it took a long time it was big bloated and wildly over budget <laughs> did you ever hear the isolated tracks that people put out of chinese democracy no, but I will say uh, I'm a I'm a fan of that record. I like that record. It's 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 I mean, it's as 
rock as a rock as a big epic production rock album goes i mean it's mm-hmm. it's really good it, it's it's not the stuff with slash but they weren't on that record you know so i think it's a great album that people will one day kind of wake up on and go wait that was a good album it's just it was hyped a little too much but these isolated tracks that people made uh, in the peak of rock band and those video games, people kind of realized of, Oh, we can isolate all the tracks and hear the stuff. So these fans were making remixes and they were taking out guitars here and they're putting extra buried tracks there. And you heard all this and you go, wow, you know, deconstructed it's even better. Wow. That I'm, I got some YouTube searching to do. <laughs> yeah, look up the version of the song Better, which is a great, great song. Oh, yeah, that's one of my favorite jams on that album. There's a great mix where they took the guitars out of the verses and they kick it in the choruses, and it's great. Yeah, it's that that is a cool record. That it's and it d- didn't get its it didn't get its due, but there was no way it took you know that thing was so delayed. There was no way it could ever possibly live up to the delays and the hype and everything. So yeah, started in 94 or 95 and it finally came out in 06 or 07. So sometimes an album is good, but you go, is it 12 years good? No, I don't think it's it's 12 (laughs) years good to, to be honest with all that. So I'm just wondering if it's the kind of thing where Eddie has all these albums (laughs) or at least tracks done and they were just waiting for the right renegotiation period with Warner Brothers. Although, didn't uh, Different Kind of Truth was the only album to come out on Interscope, right? Right, correct, yeah. And I was just thinking, I think Sammy brings this up in his book, which I've only read bits and pieces of, but or I've read an interview somewhere where I think pretty sure it was Sammy where he was disputing the fact that, you know, Eddie says, everybody says there's all this music in the vault, all tons and tons of music in the vault. He goes, it's fragments, it's snippets, it's a lot of crap, it's not full songs, it's, you know, it's jams, it's not, it's, it's not, don't, don't think it's what you think it is. So words to that effect, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, so who knows what the hell's in those vaults? It's all a big mystery. And I guess, hey, it, uh, it's great podcast fodder. It's more wildlife soundtrack, you're saying? (laughs) Oh, the dearly departed. uh, Oh, my God. Now I forgot uh, Sean Penn's brother, Sean and Michael Penn's Chris Penn. Chris Penn. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, should we get to it with G Brown? Yes. Thank you all for listening through all this. And I think you're going to like this chat with G Brown. He has many more books to come as we uh, uncovered in this one. And Thankfully, he spoke about what it's like to interview Dave and Eddie over the years. He did that a bunch of times. Awesome. Awesome. Well, enjoy. And thank you for downloading and streaming the DLR cast. How are you, Darren? Nonstop, but good. Yourself there. It beats the alternative these days. It definitely beats being bored. Uh, Do you mind me getting straight into it here? Knock yourself out, pal. That's why I'm here. Okay. So... You've got a great series of books, and 1978 and 1984 are two of them. Uh, Is it a coincidence that those are the two instrumental years in the Van Halen catalog right there? Uh, Yes, it is coincidental. It's funny, volume three is 1991, and you've got Van Halen and David Lee Roth solo in that year, right? Right. enough. So, yeah, he's all over the series. Uh, the band is too, uh, in all iterations. 
Yeah, and these books are really, really well put together to say the least. It's a lot to look at, it's a lot to read. Most coffee table style books, and I call it a coffee table style book, they don't have all that knowledge if they, they look great. So kudos to you on such a great job. How long did it take to put together the uh, most recent book? Uh, it's kind of liquid, Darren. I appreciate the kind words. Thanks. I work hard on that stuff. And uh, it's, I consider them photo books. The uh, archival photography, I think that's a collection that doesn't exist anywhere else, to be candid, uh, yeah. as far as the comprehensive nature of it. Uh, but to be able to draw upon my wealth of interviews, I covered popular music for the Denver Post back when newspapers meant something, right? <laughs> a pretty blessed existence, right? I got to cover the beat that I love uh, and talk to pretty much everybody. Uh, but yeah, to uh, take those, all the interviews I did, 3,248 over the course of uh, over 25 years. And uh, compiling all that, you know, the, the first one took longer than the the uh, the last couple. I'm on my way working to on volume nine right now, and uh, takes me about three months now that we've got the template to accrue everything. Three or four months. That's fantastic. And when exactly did you stop being such a prolific interviewer? I assume it would coincide with not writing for the Denver newspaper as much anymore. Correct. Uh, I left the post in 2003, Darren, and I still did a lot of interviews. Uh, got in radio here in the Colorado market, and uh, in, I run a nonprofit based on Colorado music history, Colorado music experience, if anyone cares. Uh, got a lot of great content there that, you know, entails interviewing people. That's just been my path to, uh, to talk to folks, and um, yeah, I'm more lucky and grateful than anything. And among the great exciting, interesting folks that you have spoken with over the years are David Lee Roth and also Van Halen. When's the first time that you interviewed Diamond Dave? That would have been in 1979 when they came through and played the University of Colorado in Boulder, played at the Fieldhouse on campus. And I remember it very distinctly. Uh, got invited backstage to do the interview. I distinctly remember the circumstances. I went backstage to conduct the interview and walked into a party, uh, <laughs> which figured that it's what I expected. But uh, David Lee with uh, several, uh, surrounded by women, uh, two of them on his lap, one, one for each knee, you know, and uh, conducted the interview that way. Uh, and, uh, you know, just full of brio. David was always, so great, I, uh, so smart, right, and so funny, just, uh, but I always had an appreciation for the guys who you only had to ask one question, in Dave's case, <laughs> hey, how are you, and boom, you know, half hour later, you got <laughs> everything you needed, but it wasn't just bloviating, you know, it was, uh, David, very thoughtful, very smart about stuff, but in his own ribald, uh, 
street patter kind of way. So uh, a lot of affection for him. A lot of the interviews that you see with David Lee Roth, whenever there's a TV special or a compilation of some sort, some sort, they seem to be after 1984, like I guess coinciding with him leaving Van Halen. There's not a ton of stuff from 78 to 84 Van Halen out there as far as I see. So interviewing him in 79, was it any different than interviewing him in the 80s or the 90s? Did he change very much? Uh, I think that he was uh, filled with that much more musical enthusiasm. Not musical, youthful enthusiasm. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they were just kids out of Pasadena out of, at that point. So uh, it was all new to him. And that energy, I think, is uh, unduplicated. He became a, a savvy veteran. Uh, never lacking for enthusiasm, but, you know, just uh, a little more thoughtful approach than just blah, uh, like he was in 1979, that first time hitting the road on a nationwide tour when they were already playing arenas right out of the gate, right? So in the 80s and 90s, it was still a, I ask one question and then who knows what direction it's going to go in? Uh, yeah, that never changed, really. I mean, I, uh, I'm exaggerating slightly I was always able to steer the interview he's a great conversationalist it's not like he's just got whoever on the other end and lets her fly you know his scripted patter he always uh you know I always appreciated people who spent quality time with you you know to uh answer your questions directly um interviewing people is uh interesting skill right um I just did a lot of it that's the only way you get better but uh, to get someone to tell you something they haven't told anyone else is kind of the idea, right? Um, people always ask me who the worst interview I ever did was, and I don't have an answer, really. Um, I, my experiences were pretty universally positive if you did your homework, so to speak, right? And just ask a question that isn't in the biography that the record company sent, you know, just something thoughtful or, or smart. People love to talk about themselves. Just don't insult them by asking them stupid questions or the same old questions. And, uh, you know, David was totally engaging that way. Well, not to take it down a negative route there, but when you say who's the worst interview and you can't come up with an answer, did you ever have the pleasure of interviewing Yngwie Malmsteen like I did? <laughs> well, uh, I'm not... <laughs> worst is kind of a subjective term. I'm not going to advocate for Ingbe. I mean, sure, he was taciturn and just, you know, um, didn't didn't like doing it. But, you know, that's that's on him, not on me. I still ask smart questions. I got what I needed. I always just wanted to get a get a quote, you know, and uh, report on their music. And you know, once you establish that, you know, who knows what's going on on the other end, right? probably didn't, you know, their eggs were cold from room service or something. <laughs> That's a reason to take it out on, on Darren on the other end of the line, you know. Uh, uh, it, was, it was always nuanced and complicated, but, and maybe I'm just guilty of remembering the good times. But you bring up Big Bay and that's pretty funny. I, I can't say I had a similar experience, but I know exactly of what you speak. My Ingve interview, which I'm trying to dig up, I think it was like 2001, 
and maybe four minutes long. You know, uh, what kind of, what music do you like to listen to when you're not on the road? I don't listen to music. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> but I think the exact opposite. You said before, you know, you were exaggerating with the one question, you get a whole interview. But I find that certain people like say it's Ted Nugent, you ask how he's doing, and he could talk for 30 or 40 minutes, and it's still a great interview. So Roth is kind of in that camp, you're saying, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, that he never lost the talkative en uh, nature, he never lost the energy and all that. For you, do you like primarily to speak with artists like that, or do you like to have the verbal ping pong back and forth? Uh, I, I don't have a preference. You know, that's Coke or Pepsi. <laughs> Coors or Budweiser, right? I, uh, uh, it's all predicated on the personality. I'm there to, uh, you know, profile them, uh, and there's all all types, right? You bring up Nugent. That's funny, Darren, because uh, he was the obvious analogy. <laughs> I kind of bit my tongue when we started off, just because I didn't want to trot that out. But those two guys, Ted and David, are the the exemplars of the guys who didn't need any help, right? You didn't have to draw anything out of them. Uh, but, uh, oh God, I, I love the verbal ping pong too. Uh, don't get a lot of that in the hard rock genre, really. Guys are just a little more, uh, some of them, if they're not the way that David and Ted are, I find they're pretty reserved uh, for the most part. They really um, want people to, focus on their music and talk and they talk about that seriously they're not doing the self-promotion thing in the case of ted or the unbridled enthusiasm in the case of david right right were you a big fan of the david lee roth solo years at all because of course as a journalist you have to say oh well no i like everything i'm objective and all that but some writers go no man dave was the one person that i wanted to interview well, I, uh, yeah, I tracked all the solo stuff. Um, yeah, I remember early 90s, right? He put out a little ain't enough, and uh, yeah, he had just climbed a 22,000 foot peak outside of you know nearby Mount Everest and had gone uh, in a hand carved canoe, uh, <laughs> hitting the South Pacific and stuff. He had that adventurous thing, and you know, it wasn't hype. Um, he, he wanted to experience life to the fullest and, and share those experiences, you know, at least with me when I talked to him. So, uh, you know, musically, he was always candid about finding his footing, the latest band he put together. Uh, uh, Mid-90s, I recall a recording situation where he took the band of players he had assembled to the worst location, I guess, in the middle of New York City. You know, there's a strip bar downstairs there's crime on the streets and stuff and it was very deliberate on dave's part to put the band in a situation you know where they're uncomfortable you're missing your girlfriend well that's the day we play the blues i remember that very specifically he had plotted all that out so uh yeah always thoughtful it seems like he's a little too smart for his own good at times and in a way, with Van Halen, he was playing to the lowest common denominator, but it's not a lot of the people who really realize how smart the man is and was and all that. What do you think of what he's up to these days? Because there was that great New York Times piece about a week ago. Uh, which I have not read, uh, but 
last time I encountered David was on the reunion tour, and um, he was in pretty poor voice, right? He was struggling, at least when he played here at Red Rocks in Colorado, and uh, felt bad, you know? That's nothing to do with personality. That's just, you know, we're all getting older, and some a uh, little more uh, not, graceful is not the word, uh, but boy, he just just was challenged. A lot of pressure on him. Right. There's there's a lot of mixed reviews on it, to say the least. That some people swear that the 2008 reunion tour is that the one you're talking about, the 2008 one. Yes, Derek. Some people are saying, "Oh man, he was great that night." I don't know what they're talking about. But I recently watched this concert that I brought up on the podcast from 99 in Finland, and he's killing it. He's still in top form. So the question is when the voice kind of went away, but fortunately, the personality never went away. Yeah, well, he was always a showman, so I think he got by on stage just on sheer brio. Uh, but yeah, I don't think my ears deceived me. He was, he was struggling the night that I saw him last, so... Uh, you know, that's, that's tough. Uh, a lot of my heroes and, and friends from that era are dealing with similar things. If you're a guitarist, you're, you got carpal tunnel, you know, yeah. or you got uh, any number of things, uh, back problems if you're a, a drummer. Uh, and if you're a singer, the pipes are a little, a little rugged, you know, you're only as good as that muscle, you know, so... He'll bounce back. He'll be back. I don't doubt it. He was great when I saw him in Vegas back in January, one of my last pre-COVID concerts. But steering this in another direction, who from Van Halen did you interview over the years besides Dave? I'm, I'm going to assume, based on what I'm hearing, the whole band. Yes. Um, at one point or another, I got, uh, got all the guys. Uh, didn't talk to Michael Anthony excuse me, or, uh, or Alex as much. But uh, again, nothing but a lucky boy, you know, to get to talk to Eddie. Um, one of the great guitar players to traverse this planet, you know. Um, that was as much of a joy in its own way. So, uh, yeah, it was great to chronicle those guys. They were the best of the brightest for their time. There's still a mystique around Eddie all these years later. Maybe it's because he didn't say very much or he didn't do a lot of interviews or he's kind of gone years in public or hiding. Sounds like you had positive experiences with him whenever you did interview him. Yeah, again, uh, he was always gracious and, and candid, but it was pretty obvious that, uh, you know, we should be talking about music and not any of the peripheral stuff. The line of questioning for Eddie was totally different than it was for David, right? Um, a little joke in my household uh, to illustrate that point there. And my wife, when she, I, she comes home and uh, I had conducted an interview and she always invariably say, well, does he have kids? Is he married? Uh, and I was like, honey, you got to read about him in People magazine for that. I, that's not what I do. I'm talking about music with them. And uh, she always was not frustrated, but it's like, well, how can you do that? You know, and uh, that was my job to make it about that. And that's why I think I'd like to think that I had existing ongoing uh, chances to talk to these people that when they came to, to Denver, 
they wanted to catch up on their music. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of how I looked at it. I never wanted to be a critic, I guess, Darren, is another point to make. I, I always fancied myself a reporter than a critic. Um, not that I couldn't get my opinion in there, but <laughs> you need to do that in a sentence or two. You don't need to make the whole piece about, you know, writing comedy about tearing someone down or building them up. Uh, I wanted to be a conduit. Um, I interviewed Barry Manilow as many times as I interviewed David Lee Roth. So <laughs> draw your own conclusions, right? I'm so glad to hear that because sometimes I get flack from other reporters where they go, well, ask, ask about this rumor. Um, ask about that thing. And you kind of learn from over time. If you're the person trying to break all the stories, you might not get an interview on the next album go around or something like that. Well, yeah. And yeah, I mean, there's, there's the job of a reporter, you know, to, to get the story, but yeah, to traffic just in the latest rumor and stuff, there's, there's plenty of people working that side of the street, you know, totally. So I never felt a need to compete there. Certainly maybe my editors, uh, you know, occasionally would bring pressure to bear, you know, like uh, directing you to want to uh, stir up some dust, but not why I was wanting to do it. Uh, like I say, there was plenty of folks covering that stuff. I wanted to kind of get down to the, the meat of it. And it got harder and harder over the years there. And I don't know what your experiences are these days, but the, the real dichotomy is, in a, uh, as a for instance, the movie Almost Famous, right? Mm -hmm. um, where you see a young doppelganger for Cameron Crowe getting to hang with the bands and actually profile them, see what makes them tick. Uh, and that was my experience. Uh, as a really young guy, it, I, it was all you know, famous in the Rocky Mountains is, is really my backstory. Uh, but it started happening even just, uh, uh, you know, the turn of the century where, you know, everything was run by publicists. The access was restricted. It was, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, you've got five minutes on the phone. Don't ask them about rehab, you know, and you couldn't even tell if it was a roadie on the other end of the line, you know, that it got to email interviews. You know, it just really got away from what seduced me, which was being able to spend quality time with people and talk to them, you know. I think the only thing worse would be uh, being a rock photographer, <laughs> right? Yeah. Bring your 600 <laughs> lens, you know, and you can sit behind the sound booth in the back of the stadium, you know, and don't, and you only get the first two songs, you know. It's oh just... yeah, man. I, I got to tell you, uh, one of the first shows where I noticed that shoot from the soundboard thing was a Stone Temple Pilots tour uh, two summers ago. And I'm sure it existed before then, but you kind of got to think, are you trying to hide your age? Is it that you don't think that the photographer is all important? Is it that you have a tour photographer and they have the exclusives and you're trying to make them earn their keep? Why is it that people are now shooting from the soundboard? Well, it's so disingenuous because everybody shooting the concert on their phones right so i mean it, i could back in the day you used to sign a contract right that it wouldn't be used you give away your firstborn so that it wouldn't get used to, to make posters or something like that but now with everyone you know not even just shooting it videoing you know from the, the front rows and putting it out there in real time and they're worried about some guy with actual chops you know who knows how to operate a camera trying to 
work their level of art, if you will, right? Make it as totally impossible as they can. Yeah, I, uh, uh, that's been a sad development in the industry. Definitely, right, right behind service charges. <laughs> that's another, but that's another story. Okay. That's story. So bring back to the optimistic end of things. As somebody who's done thousands of published interviews. <laughs> Is there anybody that you're still hoping to get this far into your career that you haven't gotten yet? Yeah, there were people I didn't get. Uh, my career was kind of based on being centered in the Rocky Mountains and, and benefiting from tour publicity. Mm -hmm. Came and played the market. I was the guy they talked to. Um, Lucky and grateful. There are those words again. There, uh, yeah, come off as uh, being anything but. The fallout of that is if people didn't come to Denver, I didn't get to talk to them. And I guess the one that comes to mind is Madonna. Hmm. She never came to Colorado on any of her tours. So, uh, not that she would have talked to me anyway. <laughs> but I didn't have the opportunity to pitch, like you know, do it to help the show or you know, talk to your fans in the region here or whatever. Um, so that, that comes to mind, but that's really the, the parameter that was on it. Um, it had to be people who came to town. Most everybody did, so a uh, pretty short list of people that I, uh, you know, would want to track down. But I'd like to think uh, having a, an adult beverage with Madonna would be a fun thing, you know. <laughs> Even at this stage, you know, I mean, uh, that, would, that would be fun. Right. She is seen a lot, and a lot of people don't exactly remember, well, Madonna brought the Beastie Boys out on tour, and Madonna played CBGB before she had the record deal. <laughs> There's that archival footage of Michael Musto from The Village Voice kind of ranting about her on stage and all that. But again, you know, whether uh, what you think of her image, whether you enjoy her music or not, really smart. Really smart. So I say that without having spoken to her, but uh, it's, uh, you just learn over the years for people to attain a level of success, even a Justin Bieber <laughs> is really smart on some level. They're all also total dopes on another, but uh, there's an underlying current yeah. of intellect, you know, that they all share, they couldn't get there. No but drawing an improvised conclusion here, I would put David Lee Roth and Madonna on a similar path or line. You know, they got famous within a few uh, years of each other. They've had ebbs and flows in terms of mainstream popularity. But when somebody says that name, you have an image in your head of them at their prime. Yep. Even though they've reinvented themselves a ton of time and tried different media and all that. Yep, they go. They knew what they wanted and they went and carved it out. And, uh, that's a, a fun, fun thing to chronicle. Exactly. And then back to you here, um, being that you were still nonstop with the interviews until the early 2000s, might we see a 2002, a 2003 volume of your book series? Uh, great question. And thank you for giving me the chance to tell you about the series, uh, the ambition is to do 1978 to 1998. Um, those are the years that I really have the resources to pull off. And it seems like, you know, two decades is, you know, we can expand on either side of those 
that range at some point if I get the opportunity, but just committing to trying to do 21 volumes, uh, 78 to 98 would be 21. And uh, uh, if I can amplify it beyond that, great. But I got my work <laughs> out for me. This is already a five-year plan. So uh, we've got 1981, 1995, 88, 79, 86, 92. We're trying to hopscotch around because I didn't want a kid interested in grunge to wait till I wrote 13 books after 1978, the first one, to get there. So uh, that's why we jump around. Uh, and yeah, it's every year has its, its value. And uh, it's fun to see who is in the majority of them as I write them. Uh, Rod Stewart comes to mind. He seems to pop up all through. Uh, yeah. Every year he made a record, you know, and then and, and toured. So that's it. And the Van Halen camp, you know, the, yeah. the David Lee and the Sammy eras, you know, they, they, they were worker bees. So they're, they're pretty well represented too. So thanks for asking. Uh, if I get to 2003, uh, that would be remarkable. Uh, that was the year I left, but that was also the year, Darren, that they stopped issuing the photos that you see in the books, which is collecting that archival eight by 10 press photo stuff and by 2003 it all gone digital right they just sent out jpegs you didn't get that hard eight by ten anymore um, i don't know if you could see my background there but the black frames in the back <laughs> you seem to be familiar with what i'm alluding to yeah uh, a lot of people they come over and they go hey why don't you have so and so mm, after 2003 <laughs> yeah, yeah that's exactly it uh, come come look at my screen you know but uh, yeah, I saved all that stuff, Darren. That's what's kind of goofy. I couldn't listen to or curate all the music that I was privy to. You know, I mean, that, that was the blessing working for a major daily. You know, mm -hmm. sent it all for review purposes, and uh, I couldn't take care of all that. Didn't want to. You know, a lot of it was crap. <laughs> but um, but I saved all those photos. So um, that's really my passion is to share that with everybody through these books uh, and people seem to be nuts for it so i'm gratified totally well you've been so generous with your time thank you so much for the anecdotes and also more importantly thanks for preserving great musical history with your books and what you're doing with your project otherwise so just thanks all around g i thank you Darren. thank you for helping me get the word out about it i think any music fan would enjoy these things so uh, i hope they'll check it out